Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Father, we come before you thankful to be together, Lord. We're thankful for the perseverance of the saints. That's a work that you do in our hearts and that you've kept us going in ways that we just didn't know we could keep going. <laughs> if you were to tell us months ago, uh, we wouldn't know that we had that kind of perseverance. We're thankful for that. Pray, Lord, that you would give us a great time in your word today, that you would help to ease any of the distractions that we're having. We pray for those who are online with us, Lord, that your spirit would so make both your and our presence felt that, that they would be experiencing as if with us in the same room. And uh, Lord, we know you've done that over and over again over the weeks that we have gathered that way. And we just pray, Lord, that you would do it again. We pray for Lorian and her team as they're facing not only issues with coronavirus and the lockdowns that are happening there in that country where they can really do anything lockdown-wise. And we just pray, Lord, that you would be strengthening her with the isolation Pray you'd strengthen her and calm her fears. Lord, we pray that you'd supply water for that city and that there wouldn't be any kind of uh, panic or disruption about the water, Lord. And we pray that the gospel would go forth in amazing ways there. We're so thankful for our sister who we've known for a really long time, being willing to go to that place and minister there away from family and friends for years. And we just pray, Lord, that this morning as we gather with her, that she'd be encouraged too and strengthened in our work there. Lord, we pray as we open your word that you would uh, make it alive to our hearts. Your word is infallible. Your word is necessary. Your word is sufficient. Your word is authoritative. It is your very words. And yet, Lord, it can fall on deaf ears if you don't give us ears. And so we pray you'd leave us ears to hear. We pray that you'd help us to love your word and to receive your word and to be transformed by your word. And we pray your Holy Spirit would do that for us. And all God's people say, amen. So we're in a new series. We've been in this series a couple weeks called Reunited. And we're hoping it's going to be a season of reunions. Uh, reunions with, with family, with school, with work, um, with church. It's working. So that's good. And, but we know that we have a new environment. I mean, even as we're singing and stuff like that, we're dealing with a new environment. And I know like a month or two ago, everybody was saying like, hey, let's do that when this is all over. And you don't hear people saying that as much now, right? And, you know, when this is all over, because it's like, well, you know, this might be a new environment for a while. And so I think really the word we need to be thinking about now is, is adaptation. You know, how do we adapt? How do we, how do we have new skills that Jesus could give us to, to do the things necessary to be the church for each other, to do the things necessary to minister to our families? And we need that, right? We need his spirit to strengthen us, to give us wisdom, and even to give us desire. Because some of us have gotten kind of comfortable in a situation of isolation. Some of us are very uncomfortable, and we need that. So here we are in this series. We're going through the scriptures and what it says about relationships. We've, last two weeks, talked about uh, friendship. Uh, the first week, we talked about Genesis 2, and God designed us for friendship. We have a need for friendship. It is not good for man to be alone. That's about everybody. That's about their need for friendship. And then we saw last week in Hebrews 3 that for Christians especially, friendship's a matter of life and death. And so we saw that that's 
what God uses to persevere us. This morning, we're going to look at what friendship looks like in the church. And the word in the Bible for that is fellowship. And fellowship is a kind of friendship that Christians have together. We have a special kind of friendship because our friendship is united around the best of all beings. Like there's people that unite around sports, they unite around their work or whatever. We unite around God, our creator, the best of all beings, the source of all joy. And so having that union in our friendships makes our marriages better, makes our parenting better, it makes our friendships better, makes our work better, having Christ as the center. And the best place to go to see that is in Acts 2. So take a look at Acts 2.42. I'm going to kind of work my way down through this. It says in Acts 2.42, we've got this beautiful summary passage that Luke gives us of what the first church was like. And so this is shortly after Jesus. He, he dies. He's resurrected. Forty days he spends with them. He ascends. And then Pentecost comes uh, about ten days after his ascension. And the church is gathered together. They receive the Holy Spirit. And then this is a picture of what the church looked like. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And this is such a beautiful, simple picture of the church. Everybody likes this verse when they think about the church. Everybody likes what this looks like. Everybody's like, oh, that sounds great, right? And you can see the four things, the four practices they devoted themselves to. It was the apostles' teaching. These people loved the word. Uh, They were devoted to fellowship. They loved each other. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. They loved taking the Lord's Supper together and also their meals together. And they were devoted to prayer. They loved to call upon the Lord for help. Um, And so you have these four kind of beautiful practices, right? And we look at it and we're all like, oh, wouldn't it be great? Like, that sounds so good, you know? But we can't idealize them. They were not, like, without drama, right? I mean, you only have to go to Acts 5, and there's two people that get, like, get put to death. God does, not the church, because they were lying. And then in chapter 6, you have this squabble about the widows, you know, or these widows with this language, you know, the, the, the Greek-speaking versus the Hebrew-speaking widows. So it's not like there was no drama. A lot of times we go like, oh, they were all peaceful and happy, and it was this wonderful place. No, there, there was still sin, but they had these four beautiful practices. And when they did them, look at the results. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul. Now, that word awe there is phobos, and it means fear. There was fear that this created. And this fear is actually in the community around them. The community around them saw them gathering, saw them devoted to these four things, and it freaked the community out. The community around them was like, who are these people? What are they doing? What's the power here, right? And then it says, and wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So they're getting supernatural answers to those prayers. And then it says, and all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing their proceeds to those who had need. So they were generous to one another. They have things in common. And then it says, and day by day they attended the temple and breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. So there's joy. And then it says, and they praised God. They worshiped. They worshiped in ordinary spaces. And it says, and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to the number day by day those who are being saved. So there's people coming in, right? People coming in the church, people coming to faith. And I've never met anyone that's read that and thought, I don't want that. Everybody reads that and goes like, that's so beautiful. It's so simple. It's so effective. But here's the thing, guys. There are very few people that are willing to do what it takes to have it. Okay? Because a lot of times we think, why can't somebody make that for me? Why has no church been able to make that for me, produce that for me, right? But if you look at how this happened, they were devoted to it, 
right? It says they devoted themselves to these three practices. When they had, they had amazing leaders that kind of put up a system that it all worked. No, each person personally devoted themselves to it. And that's hard. Would you guys admit that's hard? It's hard to be personally devoted to those four things. It's especially personally hard to be devoted right now to fellowship. I mean, I think we're very strong in those other areas, but we need help in the area of fellowship, and it's not all our fault. <laughs> you know, this is a very difficult time to try to, to be devoted to fellowship. It's tricky right now. We've had cultural forces, so for the last several years through technology and stuff, society's made it easier and easier for us to live apart from each other, to, to not care about each other, to kind of huddle in our own area. We can buy things alone. We can stream movies alone. We can, we can uh, have social interaction alone right? It's weird, right? It's all been created so you never have to really leave your home. You never really have to interact. And then a few months ago, we have this snapping into place, the perfection of this whole plan, right, of, of separation of each other through our situation, you know, with coronavirus and everything. And then we're separated. And then some of us have gotten really used to it, right? And, and we had forces in our heart that made us kind of isolate from each other. And then we had a couple months of really good training to do it fully, right? And now it's like, oh, I know I should reach out, and I know I should have fellowship, and I know I should develop my friendships, but I'm like kind of stuck now. Like even some of you guys that are really outgoing, and this kills you, also feel stuck. It's a weird deal, you know? But you've been discipled. You've been discipled by, by teaching in the culture, and then you've been discipled by practice, right? You've done a spiritual discipline of isolation, and now it's stuck, and so what we really need from this text, we really need for God to help us to be devoted to fellowship. That word devoted has the sense of persevering or being persistent in. And that's exactly what we need because everything in us, everything in the culture says, you know what, just let that relationship go. Just let that church go. Just let your Christian friends go. And, you know, we've had a lot of hindrances throughout the ages to this fellowship thing. Fellowship's never been easy. One of our main hindrances, though, besides, you know, a global pandemic, which is significant, is the idol of freedom. We have an idol of freedom. And I know this is super awkward to bring up on a 4th of July weekend. And on a 4th of July weekend, when you feel the least free you've ever felt on a 4th of July, right? Like, you're like, liberty, I can't leave my house, you know? But at least you had your neighbors, and they had, like, severe pyrotechnics, right? And they were like, don't worry, I got your show, you know? It's like, who are these people? This is like super dangerous. But um, I have a diagram. Imagine your life in three buckets, okay? Imagine you have three buckets, and those three buckets are freedom, meaning, and community, okay? And you don't have three buckets worth of life. You have one bucket worth of life, and you're going to distribute it in you know, each of these three buckets in differing degrees. As Americans, we put the whole bucket in freedom, Okay, we went, you know what, I'm going all freedom, I'm going to pour my whole life into having freedom. And so what happens is when you do that is your life, your meaning and your community bucket are extremely dry. Okay, they're extremely empty. And, and I'll just describe how this happens. So the meaning one, uh, we naturally want to rebel against God, we naturally don't want God telling us what to do. So either we disbelieve in God, or we kind of decide on a God that doesn't ask much of us, right, that we made up in our own minds. And when we do that in a pursuit of freedom, we have a very empty meaning bucket. If you made up your own religion and you made up what God's like, you have no meaning <laughs> because you made that up, right? Meaning you made up is not meaning. Would we agree? Yeah. Okay, good. I just, you know, like, no, I have meaning of my own. It's like, no, that's not real meaning. 
Next example, community. In an attempt to have freedom, we don't want to have constraints of taking care of other people. We don't want the constraints of obligations to other people. We want to do what we can do when we want to do it. We don't want those constraints. And so what happens, we pour our whole life into freedom bucket, and the community bucket is dry. If you look at our culture right now, it is a meaningless, lonely culture. Why? We poured our whole bucket into freedom. Okay? And we're doing that too, guys. We've all been discipled by the culture too. This isn't you know, to, to pick on anybody but ourselves, right? The, the best example of this, guys, is when you, those of you who had kids. When you had kids, how much of your freedom bucket did you have to give up? Yeah, you guys are like, like, I don't have any, you know? You did. You basically had to give up your freedom bucket, right? You had to give up your freedom to have kids. And so, but let me ask you this. How much meaning have you gotten out of being a parent? And how much community... What's really neat, especially as your kids get older, is it's your own tribe. You guys are experiencing that over there. I can totally tell. It's your own tribe of people. Like when you go do stuff, you got your people. You got your community, right? And so your life is enriched because you gave up freedom to get meaning and community. Same thing is true with fellowship as a church. We give up freedom to have meaning and community. And what I want to do this morning is I want to look at what God has for us in the way of Christian fellowship so that we'll be willing to do that. Because we don't give up that bucket easily, okay? We don't give it up easily. So I want to show you this morning the goodness of it, of the community and meaning they have. The word in here for fellowship in the scriptures is the word koinonia. Those are guys who have been a Christian a while. You know the word koinonia. It's a really common one. Let's all say koinonia. Koinonia. Okay, good. Good job. Now you know a Greek word. It means partnership, participation, sharing, fellowship. I'm going to mostly use it this morning with the word sharing. And this morning, I want to take a look at the different layers of it. So we're going to be in Acts 2, but we're also going to do a bit of word study. We're going to look at four ways that koinonia is used in the New Testament and kind of how it connects to this text. And the the four ways, I'll just give them to you ahead of time, is koinonia or fellowship is sharing our life, sharing our mission, sharing our stuff, and sharing our God. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. First, it's sharing our life. Koinonia, fellowship, means sharing our life. You share your life with one another as a church because you already have a shared life with each other through the Holy Spirit. If you take a look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12, when you became a Christian, you got united with Christ through the Holy Spirit and therefore united to one another. It says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So when you came to faith in Christ, you got united to Christ by the Holy Spirit. And not metaphorically. I think for a long time I thought that was a metaphor. It's not metaphorically. You were literally united to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit literally, in the spiritual realm, connects you to Jesus, and his life can flow through you, and you got the benefits of his righteousness, and he took on your sin because of union with Christ. But what happens when you do that is all other believers also got united to him through the Holy Spirit, and so we became what Paul calls here a body, a real body, a spiritual body, but a real body. It's a body that is connected by the Holy Spirit, that we've been fused together and become a real body. And so the church is something that you are before it's something that you add. Church is something you are. You're connected to the body. When you came to Christ, even before you joined a church, you were connected to the church. And so the church is something you are, not just something you add. It's the difference between you being a, um, a juggler or a kidney, okay? 
You're a kidney, not a juggler. I'll explain this, okay? Juggler. Okay, a lot of us look at our lives as a juggler, right? So you're a juggler. You juggle things every day. You juggle your marriage. You juggle work. You juggle kids. You juggle friends. You juggle neighbors. You juggle kids' activities, exercise. And church is one of the things you're juggling, right? I don't juggle, otherwise I'd have a really cool visual aid. And so the church is one of those things you juggle in your mind. And it's, you know, one of the balls or one of the flaming bowling pins or one of the on chainsaws that you're constantly juggling. And so if you look at the church that way as something external to you like that as a juggler, the church might be something you drop when you are tired, when you need to regain your sanity. You go, I'll, I'll drop that one. I got to drop something. I'm juggling all these things. I'll drop the church one, right? But the New Testament doesn't describe you as a juggler. The New Testament describes you as an organ, like a kidney, okay? If you're an organ in the church, then you are a part of the church, and you need the church, and the church needs you, and you're connected to it. It's something that you draw your life from. It's something you give life to. You're a kidney, and there's nothing more invigorating to a kidney than to be in an abdomen and to be connected to a renal artery and to have that oxygenated blood coming into you and to send that blood out clean to the rest of the body. Like a kidney loves that. It's so refreshing to a kidney, and it's so refreshing to the lungs, right? And the heart, they received this blood from you, and you took out all the uric acid and the urea and the creatinine. You took all that out, and you gave them this fresh blood, and then they put oxygen into it, and they gave it back to you. There's nothing better than being in an abdomen if you're a kidney, and so it is with the church. The church is a bunch of parts. It's a bunch of organs. We're connected. We're interdependent. We give life and refreshment to each other. And so if we're having a hard time and life is difficult and it's crazy, it's not something we drop. It's something we live into because the church gives us life, right? And when, we're, when life is demanding and busy, um, we don't drop it because we, that's where we draw strength, right? We have a shared life. It's koinonia, we have a shared life. We actually increase one another's joy. We fuel one another's worship. And God uses us to change one another's lives. Isn't that awesome? We'll work really hard to do that, by the way. Because I know that it cannot be experienced that way all the time. And so I think we should vow to one another to be refreshing and life-giving and worship, you know, instilling and life-changing, right? Like we have an obligation to do that. But when we're functioning, that's what we do. Look at Acts 2, 46. And day by day, attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. So fellowship is shared life. Fellowship is also a shared mission. Uh, that word koinonia is used in Luke 4 in a really interesting way. So before Peter and John and uh, James became Jesus' disciples, before he called them, it says that they had a koinonia already. And their koinonia was a fishing business. It was a partnership in a fishing business. And the Greek word there is koinonia. So they had this partnership in fishing. And they left that fishing partnership to engage in a gospel partnership. And that's what the church is. It's a shared mission. It's a partnership. We have something we're doing together. And guys, that shared mission that we have as a church is one of the things that makes friendship in the church so satisfying. It's so satisfying to be building something together, especially for men. I don't know, women, you can discuss whether it's satisfying for you. But for men, it's very satisfying to have a project to do together, to have a mission to do together, have a purpose, to have something to build. Friendship is so satisfying between Christians because we have that kind of partnership. Our friendship is about something and someone bigger than ourselves. You know, C.S. Lewis talked about that in The Four Loves, right? He said that real friendship isn't like two people just looking at each other, enjoying each other's presence. You know, that's more romantic love. 
But he was like, friendship type love is about something other than each other. And he said this, he goes, the very condition of having friends is that we should want something else beside friends. Friendship must be about something. And then it says, even if it's only enthusiasm about dominoes or white mice, this is very British, those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. What's really cool about fellowship, the friendship we have, is it's about a mission. It's about a quest. All the good movies about friendship are a quest, right? You think like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. There's something you're doing together. And our fellowship is doing something together. We have a mission together. And you can see that in Acts 2, 47. He says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's the best possible mission we have together, guys. And I just think about my friendship with David and Josh and many, many, many of you. It's been built around doing something, right? Having a mission together. It's so satisfying to do. And what you see there in Acts 2.47 is, is that those people were experiencing this joy of community around God, and they were inviting other people into it, and people saw it, and they wanted to be a part of it, and then they heard the gospel, and they were joined together. And I want you guys to realize something that's really important about friendship. Offering your friendship is a huge part of our mission together. Offering your friendship. People aren't just looking for a friendly church. They're looking for friends. There's a big difference between those, right? They aren't just looking for a friendly church. They're looking for friends. And so, you know, Lord willing, as we gather here or wherever we go from here, we just wander around. As we have new people come in, offer them your friendship. That's the way this works. That's the way this grows, is you offer them your friendship. People aren't just looking for a friendly church. They're looking for friends. And one thing I wanted to mention is that our kids in our church are super good at this. They're really good at you kids that are here. I don't know if you're listening or not, but listen now. You guys are really good at what I'm talking about right now. This offering your friendship as a part of our mission together. Because when kids come to our church and they come in children's ministry or whatever, our kids are always like, oh, good, more kids. They're always like, this is great. I think it's like maybe like a takeover because it seems to be like a takeover. And they're like, okay, more, for the, more troops, you know, to take the church over. But but they, they say, oh, cool. They want to add more to their crew, right? They want to put more kids in their group text. They want to do more things together. And um, I would just say, if we as adults were more like them, we would see even more the Lord adding day by day those who are being saved. We, we need to take a note from them and, and reach out. So what does it look like practically? It looks like practically that we build close relationships with each other in the church. And if you're going to start doing that, you haven't before, I'm not the best person to start with. Uh, start with somebody that's not as connected. I feel pretty connected. But grab somebody, have lunch with them, have them for dinner, connect with them, build relationships. And as you do, make relationships with people that don't have a relationship to the church, right? And then bring them into your friend circle. And you say, well, what about the gospel? They will hear the gospel from us. That won't be a problem. The most important thing really is to have a way to connect them to the body. They will hear the gospel from us. We are gospel all the time, people. They will hear it. So we have a, a shared life, a shared mission. We have shared stuff, okay? Koinonia means sharing your stuff, too. If you look at uh, Acts 2.44, it says, All who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all who had need. Americans freak out on this one. And I've heard all sorts of like walk-arounds this. Well, you know, there's a different time, different kind of people. 
They weren't our kind of people. Like, there's other things to take care of that now. All that, right? Like, no, guys, no. I, I really think Luke is giving us these four practices to show us this is what we do. It, we are, as Americans, we fancy ourselves as rugged individuals. I don't know how rugged we really are after seeing us for the last few months, but we fancy ourselves to be rugged individuals. What's mine is mine, and then on the flip side, like, I don't need anybody's help, right? Kind of attitude, right? And that's why we really back up against it. We go like, is this some sort of communism? You know, kind of a thing, right? Is this, is this communism? What is this? They're selling their stuff, redistributing wealth. Like, what's going on? This isn't communism. You know why? Because they volunteered, <laughs> okay? Communism, when they take your stuff and give it to other people, and they don't give you the joy of giving it away. This is way more fun, actually. Um, they were voluntarily giving their stuff away. And here's the thing. It's not that strange if the church is a family, okay? It's strange if it's just a club, but if it's a family, this is not strange. It would not be strange for you to give stuff to a family member, and you wouldn't call it charity either, right? You'd call it being family, and that's what we do. And I, I want to tell you guys in this area especially, I mean, you're good everywhere, but in this area, you guys are extremely good. You guys are always willing to meet the needs of brothers and sisters in need, whether that means like putting a roof on someone's house and you did it yourself, or whether it's bringing food or whatever, you guys have been awesome in this area. And, you know, as far as benevolence goes and stuff, we've always had more in benevolence than we can find a way to, you know, to faithfully give away. And so you guys have been awesome in this area. And you guys might think, well, don't people take advantage of this? They could, but you have deacons. And deacons are the people that use wisdom and make sure that you're actually helping a person, not harming them by giving them things. And so it means sharing our stuff. It means sharing, fourthly, our God. I love this part. Koinonia, fellowship, means sharing our God with each other. Take a look at 1 John 1.3. This is a really cool passage. 1 John 1.3. Fellowship means sharing our God. It says this, You too have fellowship with us. So he's speaking to the people he's writing to, other Christians. You have fellowship with us. And he says, Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with each other because we have fellowship with God. And a really cool thing that we get to share with each other when we're together, besides our life and our mission and our stuff, is we share God with each other, which is an amazing sharing that we get to do. And I have perhaps the weakest diagram I've ever made that's, that's here. And it just shows that our fellowship with God is connected to our fellowship with one another. I'll describe it to you. So you got fellowship with God here. You got fellowship with each other here. And there's an arrow doing this and doing that. That's it. It wasn't an amazing diagram. You can make it at home. But um, what it's intended to show is that our fellowship with God and our fellowship with each other is meant to be like a, a positive feedback loop. So in biology, there's this thing called the positive feedback loop, which is they accelerate each other, right? So our fellowship with God should accelerate our fellowship with one another, and that fellowship with another should accelerate our fellowship with God. A really fun feedback loop that most of you ladies would relate to is the oxytocin feedback loop, which is when you go into labor, pituitary releases oxytocin, causes the uterus to contract like crazy. Those contractions create a pressure that sends signals back to the pituitary so that says, give us more. Okay? That's the kind of, is that distracting to you? Uh, that's the kind of positive feedback loop that we are to each other is we fellowship with God, and that propels us to fellowship with one another, and that propels us back to fellowship with God. And perhaps for you guys, that might explain the lack of power or the lack of intensity in your relationship with God that you're feeling right now. It could be that you are not setting aside those times of fellowship with God, or that you've not really had fellowship that would shoot you back, right? Or it could be both, right? 
And so it's super important. Our fellowship with each other fuels our fellowship with God. I have a story about Spurgeon I want to tell. You guys have probably heard it before. It may not be true. I don't care. Do not send me an email telling me it was made up because I love it, okay? And the story goes like this. So there's this lady in Spurgeon's church that stopped going to church. And it had been a few weeks, and so Spurgeon goes to her house and knocks on the door. And she's surprised, you know, he didn't text or anything before he came. And so he shows up, and they go inside, and he sits down. He's real quiet with her and everything. And he grabs these tongs, and they're sitting by the fire. And he grabs one of the hot coals, and he puts it out on the hearth. And, 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 he, and he just watches it go from red hot to, like, black as it cools, right? And he doesn't say a word. He looks at her, looks at the coal, looks at her again, grabs the tongs, puts it back in the fire with the other hot coals, and then they watch the coal like get red again and, and start flaming again. Looks at her, and she goes, I'll be back to church this Sunday. <laughs> right? And that's what it's like, right? I mean, you guys have experienced that. When you're around somebody that's on fire for the Lord, when you're around that kind of fellowship, it propels you to want to seek that kind of communion with God yourself, right? I mean, you guys you have no people in your lives, probably people in this church, that always have an atmosphere of God with them right? They're like, you know, they're not shining like Moses, but they have that kind of radiance that they've been with God. And, and you know they've clearly been in his presence. Those are the people that are the best kind of fellowship, right? Those kind of people go like, man, I need to go get some of what they have. I need to spend some time in private with the Lord. Our fellowship with each other fuels our fellowship with God, and then also our fellowship with God fuels our, our fellowship with each other. You can have that kind of communion, those people you know, those people you've heard about in church history, you know, those people that you know about now, you can have that. You can have that relationship with God that you envy in other people. And you can have that because of the Holy Spirit. That's what brought these friends together in Acts 2 in the first place, is that they had just received the Holy Spirit. They had just received a new type of access to the living God. And they were so excited that it brought them together as people to share God to each other. God, guys, is now sharing his life with us in a new and living way, a way that wasn't possible before Pentecost. And when we fellowship, we're sharing God with each other. Even more than we share our lives and our mission and our stuff, we share God with each other. And when we come together, Lord willing, for several weeks here and then maybe for longer here would be great. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, as we come together, it's meant to be a potluck, okay? Not like a potluck of food, that's a good idea too. It's a potluck of sharing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I mean, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says that to each has been given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Did you guys realize that? That to each of you throughout the week, you've been given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You have something of God to bring with you. And we only have that, guys, if we spend the time, if we take the invitation that God's given us for fellowship. Because God has invited us into fellowship with him. He's invited us into fellowship in set times. You know, people used to call it quiet times. Now people are afraid to say quiet time because it sounds too Christianese. So they don't call it anything, and then they don't do it at all. So it'd probably be better to call it a quiet time and do it than to worry about calling it a quiet time and not do it at all. But it's a, it's a focused time of fellowship with God that we should have every day. Psalm 27, 8 says this. The psalmist says to God, seek, you have said, seek my face. And my heart says, Lord, your face do I seek. 
And you hear that? God's inviting you into a time of concentrated fellowship. Or Revelation 3.20, Jesus himself says this, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, you know what he'll do? He says, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. There's a symbol there of, of shared fellowship. Like he's going to enjoy it and we're going to enjoy it. Isn't that amazing? God wants to fellowship with you in a way that could be described as him eating with you and you eating with him. He wants that fellowship time with you. And those are set times. And then we also have an invitation to enjoy God's presence all day. I think this one's very tricky to develop, but worth it, right? It's worth developing a a habit of abiding in Christ all day. David called it setting the Lord before him. Psalm 16, 8, he said, I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. So he had this way of mentally, spiritually setting the Lord before him all day to concentrate on the Lord and and be conscious of his presence. Isaiah called it having your mind stayed on the Lord. Having your mind stayed. He said in Isaiah 26.3, you keep him in perfect peace who has his mind stayed on you because he trusts in you. There's a way to develop a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour life of having your mind stayed on him. Paul called it praying without ceasing. In the Middle Ages times, uh, kind of in the medieval times, Brother Lawrence called it practicing the presence. Any of you guys read that book? Super challenging, super convicting book. But he had this whole habit of trying to always be aware of the Lord's presence and drawing from his strengths. This is what Jesus talked about, right? Um, Frank Laubach in the 20th century called it his game with minutes. So he had this game that he played. Sounds like he didn't feel terrible if he didn't do it. It was fun. And it was to see how many minutes throughout the day he could be consciously thinking about the Lord. He had a game with minutes. Jesus called it abide in me. He said this, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the invitation we have, guys, is to consciously draw our strength minute by minute from an endless reserve of life in Jesus. Or not. Like, we could do either, you know? We could do either, but we have this invitation to consciously draw strength every minute of the day from an endless reserve in Christ. I had a mentor who passed away a few years ago, and he called abide in me, he called it the greater commission. There's a great commission, but you can't even do the great commission without doing the greater commission, which is, he says, abide in me, right? Draw your strength from me. It's the best of all fellowship. And we're going to take the Lord's Supper this morning, and as we take the Lord's Supper, it's a set time of fellowship too. And if you guys have realized, it's a set time of fellowship too. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, Paul says that the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That word participation there is the word koinonia. That when we take the Lord's Supper, we're actually experiencing koinonia. We're experiencing fellowship with him. That somehow the Holy Spirit causes Christ to be closer to us in some way, which we don't fully understand, that we can feed on him, that we can enjoy his presence, that we can be refreshed from him. And by the way, that's one of the reasons why the last few months we continue to do the Lord's Supper via the live stream with you guys. They're on the live stream. Um, The reason why we did that is because even though it's very non-standard, but we felt like, you know what, if we do it as a live stream, we're really being led by pastors to take communion. We're not really doing it by ourselves. We do it coordinated together. But our reasoning for that is that the Bible speaks of it as a way that feeds us. And to cut off people from that feeding seemed like the exact wrong move to make at a time like this, okay? 
but he feeds us. The Lord's Supper also shows us how eager the Lord is to have fellowship with us. Because I think I wrestle with that. I don't know why, but I wrestle with the idea of, like, I know I need it, but does he want it? Is he interested, you know? And so when I read, like, Revelation 3.20, I'm like, wow, eat with him and he eats with me. Like, this is something he wants, but he does want it, and we know how much he wants it because he's willing to die to give it to us. Our sin, guys, cuts us off from God. Our sin was going to cut us off from joy in God forever in a place called hell, which is a place void of all friendship, in a place of total social isolation forever. That's where we were headed, right? Apart from any joy or goodness of God, but God made a way for us to be reunited to him, and he did it through his body and blood, and that's what we celebrate when we take communion. And so when you think of him on the cross, you're taking communion with his arms outstretched, paying your debt, that's a display of just how much he wants fellowship with you on a minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, daily basis. That's how much he wants to fellowship with you. And so we, uh, we've given you these communion elements. We put them on all the chairs. That doesn't mean all, everyone should take it, okay? We just have it there. And so parents, make sure it's appropriate for your kids. But how do we know if we should take it? I, I think this is a really important question because non-Christians and those who refuse to turn from their sin should not take it. But what I found in my church experience is that often Christians that are repentant, real believers, don't take it because they feel guilty. And that is not a good reason not to take the Lord's Supper. This is actually the food you need to strengthen you. And so if you're repentant of your sin, even if you had like the worst week of sin ever, if you're repentant of that, you should take the Lord's Supper. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. Who should come to the Lord's table? And this is the great description of it. Listen to this. See if this is you. Who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sin and yet trust that they are forgiven and their remaining infirmity is covered by the passion and death of Christ who also desire more and more to be strengthened in their faith and amend their life. But the impenitent and hypocrites eat and drink judgment to themselves. So you ready for that? Any of you, or any of you, you don't have to show your hands, but you can. Any of you displeased with yourself because of your sin? Okay. Check. You got that one? You should take the Lord's Supper. And then it says, yet you trust that these are forgiven and your remaining sin is covered by the death of Christ. Check. Okay. And then the next one would be, and desire more and more to be strengthened in their faith and amend their life. If that's you, that is belief in the gospel and you should take it. And so let's prepare it and I'm going to lead you guys through it and then we'll have some time of worship. On the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for remembrance of me. And after the supper, he took the cup of wine, which he had given thanks for. And he said to them, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for the forgiveness of many sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. So we're going to do it likewise, and I'll lead you in it. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you to preserve you body and soul into everlasting life, take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Let's take the body. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you to preserve you body and soul into everlasting life.
Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. Let's take the blood. Father, we thank you for this great opportunity to be together. I think I've said those words so many times up here and not meant them <laughs> like I mean them today. And so we just thank you for the gathering of the saints. We thank you for all those who are joining us via live stream, Lord. We thank you for their gathering with us. And we love them. We love the entire church. Um, Lord, we thank you for your word that gives us such a beautiful picture of what it's like to be your people on earth as your representatives. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us devoted to these things, that we would leave this place not with a list of burdens, but with a, a menu of delights, a menu of things that we could enjoy together as we proclaim you in this place. We pray, Lord, for, for years and years of fruitful ministry. We pray for uh, a place to be able to meet week to week. We pray, Lord, that you would um, strengthen our families during this time, Lord, as we get in a series here on relationships. We just pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just return to life as usual in the end, but we would return better because you'd brought us through a difficult place and taught us in the wilderness how to live for you. And so we pray that we would emerge on the other side stronger and better. Lord Jesus, stay with us. Be our companion on the way. Kindle our hearts and awaken our hope that we may know you as you are revealed in the scripture and the breaking of this bread. Grant this for the sake of your love. And we all pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.